someone passed this uh, tweet along to me recently. When asked, where do you see yourself in five years? Everybody in 2015 probably got the answer wrong. When I saw this, I had to laugh and nod my head and knowing agreement. Who of us five years ago would have found ourselves in the midst of a worldwide pandemic now? And just talking with different people and just how time has warped in our perception. So many people have uh, trouble even knowing what day it was. I was talking with someone yesterday who spent the whole day thinking it was Monday instead of Saturday. And that's just kind of indicative of, of where we are. Time itself uh, is a little bit warped for many of us as we have uh, responsibilities that we take care of. So much of it is done through screens. Uh, and yet it's hard to figure out exactly um, how to pace ourselves for a lot of us. We're, we're in 2020 now, August of 2020, a new month. And all these plans that people had in Vision 2020. And here we find ourselves in the midst of a pandemic where time uh, definitely feels off for so many of us. Augustine, the African church father, once said, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks, I do not know. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. We can think about time and know that we inhabit time, uh, but to explain it, to think about it, sometimes it's difficult to get our heads wrapped around. But this is what we do know. We are all time-bound creatures. We find ourselves living in this moment. We can reflect back on time and imagine different times in the future, but we all inhabit this moment right now. For many of us, that's a great opportunity to make the most of the time that we have. As a recent uh, Hamilton play has said, I'm not going to throw away my shot. This is an opportunity to take advantage of time. But even for others, time wears on us as we think about uh, how much pain is, is wrapped up in time. Uh, whenever I think about time and uh, read passages of scripture on it or works of, of art, I always think of the song, by, called Time by Hootie and the Blowfish. Hootie and the Blowfish, yeah, that's the name of the group. <laughs> they sing this song, Time, why you punish me like a wave bashing into the shore. You wash away my dreams. Time, why you walk away like a friend with somewhere to go. You left me crying. Can you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow running free? Because tomorrow is just another day, and I don't believe in time. And some honest words, words of lament, as the artist here crafts poetry and find words to, de to describe some of the difficulty of living within time as we experience it with all the pain and sorrow running on. And then they have this classic line in there, I think I'm out of my mind thinking about time. Or we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about time and thinking about time. And hopefully we won't be going out of our mind, but actually be put back in our right mind about the issue of time and to see it for what God meant it to be. And so we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter three, and we're calling our study today a time for everything. And this is how this passage begins. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. You're perhaps familiar with these words as it sets up the poem that we're about to look at. But before we look at the poem, I just want to note that this word season refers to an appointed time, a specified a season of time for something to happen. 
And so the sage here of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. And this is how he launches into his poem. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what has been planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Let's pause here before we move on to the rest of the passage and just reflect a little bit on this poem that the sage of Ecclesiastes has given to us. And I mean, the first point that we need to make is that this is a poem. It has seven couplets, uh, 14 lines. And I'm drawing some of this from the YouTuber, uh, channel that has, uh, it's called the, the Bible is Art. And so there's, there's 14 lines here or seven couplets. And the word time is repeated 28 times. And these are all numbers divided by seven. And seven, biblically speaking, is a number that so often means the fullness of time or completeness of time. Just think back to how the opening pages of Genesis portray a work week for God, everything done and accomplished within a work week of seven days. So this is a poem. And it's a poem about life. When we look at this poem, there's so much activity going on and so many things that we love about life, opportunities for, for things to take place like birth or planting, healing, laughing, dancing, embracing, loving, peace. This is also a poem about life east of Eden. And this poem is filled with so much that is broken about our world too. That word jars us in the first line about a time to die. There's time to kill, to weep, mourn, to refrain from embracing, for loss, for silence, for hate, for war. And we hear this and we feel the brokenness of the world. And this is part of, of what we experience in this life, these appointed seasons, when these things happen. Some of the artistry of the poem, again from the Bible is Art channel, points out that this poem is off-kilter just a little bit. In terms of the marvelous structure that it has, uh, there's a, a line right in the middle that breaks the pace. Uh, before this line, there are 25 words in Hebrew, and after this line, there are 24. It's not a perfect mirror. Most of the lines have uh, four syllables, or four words in it, rather. But this line here right in the middle breaks that up. And so in sort, instead of being short and sweet, it, it, it pulls out a little bit more. And it's kind of like what life is like, isn't it? There's order and there's structure, but there are other things that kind of come in and, and throw it off kilter a little bit. So in this poem, crafted for us to listen and to learn from, even in its own form, portrays that there's order and structure to life, but then also there's, there's something off. And even we're not really sure what it means. What does it mean to cast away stones in a time to gather stones? 
that that's a question that you know is not as clear as some of the other lines, like a time to be born and a time to die. So even in this poem, something is a little bit off for all its beauty. So this is a poem about life east of Eden and under heaven. I don't know if you noticed when we read verse one, he said there was a time for every matter under heaven. That's not precisely the same phrase we're used to seeing, under the sun. That phrase under the sun happens over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. But here he tells us that there is a time for every matter under heaven. And he shifts a little bit of perspective for us to think about where God is, where he inhabits. Or heaven is best thought about as the sphere in which God dwells. And so that is how the poem sets up. And like the poem in chapter one, he's brought back to the question of, okay, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Here he's saying, okay, there's an appointed time for everything, but what gain is there for all that we do? He's back to that question he raised for us at the very beginning of this book. What does the man gain? What do you and I gain from all the toil at which we toil under the sun? Solomon's going to begin to lift our eyes and to contemplate the role of God in our life. The first couple of chapters, he's talked about how he has been the center of the universe and Everything that he's been doing has been in pursuit of his own desires and gains. And now he's going to shift our focus to God himself. And this is what he says in verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's a lot packed into this verse. So let's spend just a few moments pulling it apart. The first thing he tells us is that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he lifts our eyes from everything done under the sun to God who dwells above the sun in heaven. And while it may be difficult for you and I to see purpose in some of the events that have been appointed to take place under the sun, God himself is working purposefully, making everything beautiful in its time. Maybe we should have in our mind a grand weaver who's taking different parts of pieces of thread and weaving them into a grand tapestry that will only be seen and understood from God's perspective. Or think about a potter with clay who takes a lump of clay and forms a beautiful work of art. Or maybe a composer who writes a piece of music. There's different parts, but it all comes together. And when it's all said and done, it's beautiful. I think that's part of the idea we're supposed to have when the sage tells us that God makes everything beautiful in its time. I like what the commentator Douglas Sean O'Donnell said about this passage in this particular verse. He said, the purpose of seeing from a heavenly perspective the tick tock of time on earth is so that we might embrace the beauty of God's comprehensive control of everything. In other words, what he's saying is that when Solomon tells us that God has made everything beautiful in his own time, that's a way of saying that everything is under God's control and everything working according to certain purposes that we can't necessarily see from our perspective, but God has under his control. This is basically an Old Testament way of saying what we are so familiar with saying in the New Testament, the words of the Apostle Paul. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And so verse 11 tells us that God has made everything beautiful in his time. But there's also this interesting phrase, 
also he has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, there's something within us that longs to know the big picture, the true story of this world. And this has been put into our hearts. It's a, it's a desire that nothing within time can, can satisfy for us. And he tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done, it should say, from the beginning to the end. In other words, God has placed eternity in our hearts, and yet we can't understand everything from God's perspective, all that is done from beginning to the end. And this is not God being mean or somehow keeping things from us. It's just a recognition of the fact that we are creatures, and we are time-bound, and we are dependent. But God is not time-bound, and he is not dependent on anything. He knows the beginning from the end. So why would God put this desire into our hearts? Hold that thought for just a moment. Hear what Philip Ryken said in his commentary. He said, the eternity in our hearts gives us a deep desire to know what God has done from the beginning to end. But as finite creatures living in a fallen world, there are so many things we do not understand. Whereas God has complete view, all we have is a point of view. Our limited perspective is unable to span, to span the, the mind of God. And here he's telling us that we are basically what we just said. We are time-bound creatures, and we have a certain perspective that we can see, and we long to know God's perspective, a God's eye view on everything. So why would God put eternity in our hearts? What is that designed to do if, if in our investigation of life under the sun, we can never answer that question definitively? definitively from our, from our limited perspective. Well, may I suggest to you, my friends, that eternity in our heart is a desire and a longing that is meant to draw us to God himself. C.S. Lewis, speaking about the issue of beauty, I think helps give us a clue. In one of his writings, he put these words to pen. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. I love this quote because he taps into a longing that you and I have of not only experiencing beauty, but to understand it and in a sense to, to know where it comes from, to, to be more satisfied, to see more beauty. And of course, C.S. Lewis will tell us that beauty comes from God. God himself is perfect beauty. And so our longing for beauty is meant to draw our hearts after God. And likewise, I think this longing for eternity is meant to draw our hearts after God as well. So don't give up on that longing. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He was speaking to some uh, philosophers in the birthplace of philosophy, Athens. And this is what he tells them. He, that is God, has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they may seek God in the hopes that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. Here the Apostle Paul tells us that God has appointed times and he's allotted dwelling places. And he's put us here with the idea that we would respond by seeking our creator, that we might find our way to him. And Paul tells us he's actually not far from each one of us. 
Those desires for beauty, for truth, for longing, for eternity are meant to find their terminus in God himself. And yet we don't seek God, not like we ought to. The good news, my friends, I can put it like this. There is a part of us that longs to transcend time. But the good news is that the one who transcends time, determined to enter time, to bring us to God, to bring us to himself. We're told in the scriptures, but when the time or when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In other words, when the appointed time came, God sent forth his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be born. There was a time for him to be born. There was a time for him to learn. There was a time for him to love. And there was a time for him to answer the call of God upon his life. We're told when Jesus enters his ministry, he came like this. He came proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus went about teaching at the appointed times. And when the time came for him to heal, he healed. And when the time came for him to have dinner with sinners and prostitutes and the outcast, he ate with them. When the time came for him to set his face as flint toward Jerusalem, where he would be betrayed, he went to Jerusalem. And we're told on that night when he had the final meal with his disciples, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And this is a a fascinating phrase. I won't spend much time on this, but I was just thinking uh, as I was preparing our time together, what what if these words were on our lips when it came time for us to pass out of this world? What would it mean for us to have such confidence in the timing of God and the fact that he has determined our birthday and our death day? And when death draws near to us, to have the confidence that our our hour has come to depart out of this world and to go with the Father, to the Father, to be with the Father. That's an interesting thought, and I just want to bring that up as an aside. But Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. But first, his, his journey led him through the cross. And we're told by the Apostle Paul that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There was a time appointed for Jesus to be born, and there was a time appointed for him to die. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But he didn't stay dead. There is also a time appointed for him to come back from the dead. And on that appointed time, three days later, we're told that God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What a beautiful way of expressing that. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus, the Lord of life. And there will come a time, my friends, Jesus is guaranteed, when he will wipe away tears from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, with Jesus in the picture, we come to a new appreciation of the appointed times that God has given us. Not only do we have the time east of Eden that we inhabit now, but there's that time coming when the things that mark time in this world will be no more for the former things we're told will have passed away. Well, let's jump back over to the passage in Ecclesiastes. Here, the sage is going to tell us several things that he knows. He says in verse 12, 
I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that every person should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. As a sage thinks about the appointed times of our life and how God has set eternity in our hearts, there's one thing that he does know. I underline the word perceived here. It's much stronger than perceiving. It's the word in Hebrew for knowledge, for knowing. He says, I know that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So here's his first confession. This I know, he tells us, life is a gift to be enjoyed from God. Do you see the words that are highlighted for us here? There's nothing better for us than to be joyful, to be able to eat and to drink at the allotted times, to take pleasure in our toil, in the work of our hands. This is God's gift to man. Not only has God given us the gift of life, but he's also given us so many of the gifts, the good gifts that come with the appointed times of our life as well. But that's not all. He also tells us here that there is an appointed time for us to do good. And that appointed time is as long as we live. He says there's nothing better than for us to do good as long as we live. This itself is a gift from God as well. And when we do that, we follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. We're told that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around doing good. It was allotted for Jesus to do good. That was the gift that God had given to him. And Jesus exercised that gift. And as followers of Christ, those of us who name the name of Jesus, we understand that truth for ourselves as well. We're told in the book of Ephesians that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do, God, uh, to do good works, which God has prepared in advance that we should do. Philip Ryken in his commentary said that we should personalize verse 12 like this. Make it, make it personal by putting first-person pronouns in the places they should be in. There is nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as I live, and to eat and to drink and to take pleasure in all my work. This is God's gift to me. So let's personalize that. But there's something else he tells us he knows. He says in verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Here's his second confession. This I know, he tells us, God is sovereign. Not only is life a gift from God, that's part of his confession, but also part of his confession is that God is sovereign. The one who's appointed the times and seasons for us to live in, this God is sovereign. What does it mean for God to be sovereign? It means that our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, as we're told in Psalm 115. Daniel chapter 4 tells us he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And of course, there's that classic passage in Isaiah 46 where God says, I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. When Solomon tells us that God's works will endure forever, he's telling us that the counsel of the Lord shall stand, and he does all his pleasure. In the history of the church, there was an assembly called the Westminster Assembly, 
and it was filled with top-notch theologians and thinkers about God, pastors, and they came together to work out a, a statement of faith. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 5, it has probably one of the, the most uh, detailed and precise definitions of God's um, sovereignty, his, his providence over all things. And this is what it says. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Uh, there's a lot in there, in, in flowery language, no doubt. But what does it mean for God to be sovereign? It means that he, he accomplishes his purposes. That's what Solomon meant when he said that what God does endures forever. Or as one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, said, there is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. Everything in this world is woven into a grand tapestry so that God himself brings about all his intended purposes. We see the bottom of the loom. And for those of us who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be able to see the, the work of tapestry above the loom when God sets everything to right. And so someone says, well, I'm tracking with you on, on God being sovereign, but what was that thing about fearing God that Solomon talked about? Let's go back to verse 14. The sage said, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. I wish we had time to, to unpack this more. But the word for fear in the scriptures can mean one of two different things. It can mean uh, shaking in one's boots and, and terror. And it can also mean having a reverential awe such that our whole life is drawn toward that thing in which we hold that awe. That's what Solomon is talking about here. The sovereign God who has determined the beginning from the end, our birthday and our death date, should be the all-consuming center of our lives. Being an all before God is entirely appropriate. When we understand what Solomon is saying about God's work enduring forever, for appointing specific seasons and times for everything done under the sun and how everything will be woven together in the masterpiece of tapestry that he is he's weaving together. The appropriate response is biblical fear, being in awe, reverential awe before this God. There's one more verse, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but it's going to set us up for our study for next week. Solomon tells us in verse 15, that which is already has been. That which is to be, God has, uh, I'm sorry, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Here, just in a very short and succinct way, Solomon tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. There are appointed seasons that God has woven into this for humanity. And God is going to seek out that what that which has been driven away. Various commentators come up with different ideas on that. Some say it's like a, a shepherd seeking what is lost, but I think maybe in the context here of what Solomon has been talking about, which is time, time that has been driven away, that has gone past us, God himself will seek that out. In other words, nothing will be lost 
that has already been. Uh, one translation puts it that God will bring everything to account. So let's bottom line our study for this time together, my friends. God is sovereign over the tick tock of time. While we draw breath, let's rejoice in his sovereign gift of life. God himself is sovereign of every tick and talk of the clock, of time as it marches on. And we've been given this moment in which to live. And so while we draw breath, let's receive this gift of life from our sovereign Lord. Now, I imagine for some of us, this is pretty basic. For those of us who describe ourselves as followers of Jesus, as believers in the one he taught us to call upon as father, this is nothing new. We know that God is sovereign over the tick-tock of time, and we know that our lives should be a response of, of gratitude for him and the life that we've been given. But this is not evident for everyone. When God is driven from our minds, there is a bleak darkness to existence. I'm thinking of what Bertrand Russell said. Of course, Bertrand Russell was the, the famous existentialist philosopher who rejected the teachings of Jesus himself. And one place he said this, it was true. I had always realized it. I hadn't any right to exist at all. I had appeared by chance. I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. Here, without being able to lift his eyes beyond what is under the sun, Bertrand Russell realizes he doesn't have any right to exist. His life is an accident. And in, with that realization, he says, I, I could feel nothing but inconsequential buzzing. That's what my life is about. And he went on to say this. I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence and that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. Here, Bertrand Russell, being quite honest with us, with a godless view of the universe, with nothing existing but this uh, space that we find ourselves in, whatever that might be. He says there's absolutely no reason for us to exist. And here we are, busy eating and drinking. That's a very dark place to go. But what if we contrasted that with the wisdom that Solomon gives to us? What if we were to think in line with our life being a gift from God? Or as Philip James Bailey once wrote, let every man think himself an act of God. Our response to life then is markedly different, or it should be. We should be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 31, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. That's an entirely appropriate response. Whatever time God has given to us, whatever has been allotted for us, our time is in his hand. And so we need to remember that, my friends, and to remember that right now counts forever. If we've been given this day, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And yes, that even means in a time of the coronavirus. My friends, I know that the appointed time that we have to live in at this moment is, is frustrating. So many of us are, are done with being in a, a world where coronavirus is spreading everywhere. So many of us are, are just done having to do life uh, in a guarded position. But even now, is an opportunity for us to trust in the Lord, to receive this day as a gift, 
to receive the gifts of God, the food that you will eat this day as, as gifts from him, as opportunities for us to do good, to love our neighbor, to love our family. Right now counts forever. And when this day is gone, God himself will seek out that which has been driven away and is being woven into a grand tapestry. And so let's trust our God. Let's say to him that our time is in his hands. You got time, my friends, for one more verse? Paul, in that same context of speaking to the Athenian philosophers, said this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's Paul saying here? He's saying this time is the perfect time to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to give our lives to him, because God has appointed another time that he will judge the world and he will do it by the person of Jesus. And he has given us a guarantee, an exclamation point on that promise by raising Jesus from the dead. So my friends, let's lean into this day. And while we have breath, let's rejoice in the sovereign gift of this day that is given to us by the hands of our sovereign God. And every day that we're given to live, Let's return thanks for the kindness of God as we trust him to weave everything together and make everything beautiful in its time.